there, all you cool cucumbers. Welcome to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am with the cool Casey. <laughs> Yay, hey, alliteration. There we go. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well this week. It is, we record this on Monday. It is actually my Monday, which is still very weird to get used to, but I'm actually, I had a short weekend, but I'm actually feeling relatively refreshed today. So that's good. I didn't make it to my plant sale last week and I'm sorry to say I mentioned I wasn't sure and I I just was not feeling up to it on the day, but I did go out and trim up my sunflower a little bit and do some weeding. So I'm trying to prepare for when I do eventually get to get some new plants. Excellent. Um, What's the weather been like there? Delightful. It was when you were down in this neck of the woods, it was very warm, just unreasonably warm for this time of the year. And it's been going up and down a little bit. But I mean, yesterday was just it was the most beautiful day you could ask for. How are you guys doing up there? Wonderful. Um, well, today is gross. It's like rainy and 40 something. <laughs> it's supposed to be 60 degrees on Friday. This oh, whole man. whole winter has winter in quotes has mm-hmm. been <laughs> just very confusing. I do like at least one good snow. We did not get our one good snow. We've had some flurries like we had flurries the other day, but nothing has built up. It's been weird so at this point I'm like fine if you're not going to give me real winter just bring spring on yeah just let's move on I I would like so daylight saving time you know we're on that now which uh you know I I hate losing sleep but I do love having light after work I hate driving home in the dark so I am happy about that and I will be able to (laughs) for Sarah who gets up so early it makes it worse I'm sure goes to bed so early (laughs) yes Um, you guys get more sunlight down in Florida though. So, uh, being closer to the equators, but I'm excited because I was like, Oh, after work on Friday, I might be able to like repot my house plants because it's going to be that warm. But, uh, so yes, I can actually start looking at things outside. So yeah, that's, Mm. uh, maybe get some more nature time in fingers crossed. Yes. Yes. Um, Sarah, do you have any updates from homework from last week? I checked out that Rewild website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have any updates. I get. I wanted to do the other side of that homework, which was to learn more about the small mammals around you, because mm-hmm. I know we have some, especially down in South Florida in the Keys, that could use some help as well. So I haven't done it yet. We'll do it. But obviously, I had explored the, the Rewilds website prior to the episode as well did you find anything super interesting or anything that stuck out to you uh I think that generally the concept of finding recently lost species is interesting to me partially because my mom loves to send me articles Mm -hmm. being like oh look they found Found the last yes they they thought it was extinct because she is very hopeful (laughs) about this uh future of species so I appreciate that locally I'm not 100% sure how locally these guys are. I think they're a little bit more in um, the middle of Pennsylvania, but I was familiar that the, with the Allegheny wood rat, which is a localish small species um, that are considered near threatened. And so I have to do a little more digging on that, but I did confirm that they, <laughs> they are close by and there is some conservation that is needed for that species. So it's interesting. Pennsylvania is also going to be doing some rewilding of the pine martin yeah i remember you showing me that 
that's another small species in our area that's basically locally extinct. And so they're looking at rewilding it and they're looking at populations of things like Allegheny wood rats to make sure that if they reintroduce the pine marten, we're not going to see a decrease in mm. other species, also game species that people are worried about. Um, so maybe we'll do a episode on rewilding pine martens because yeah. that's a very cool experiment that's going to be happening yeah. in Pennsylvania soon. I would love to do that. And that's, it's just a reminder that everything's connected. And so there is, it's a lot more than just, oh, we're going to reintroduce the species. There's a lot of things that you have to think about with that. We also have a wood rat down here. That's one of the ones that I was thinking of in the, the back of my mind when I was talking about the keys, but we have the key Largo wood rat, which is a federally endangered species as well. So that's one that I knew or was pretty sure about, but yeah. So don't forget about the little guys. Yeah. Well, this week we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to keep it light as you had it last week, um, but because spring is coming around the corner and we've talked about this for a while about potentially doing a food gardening episode, Yay! it's time we're doing it. Excited. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about food gardening today. And Sarah, I was wondering if your family grew any food growing up. We did. We kind of inherited a garden when we moved when I was fourth, going into fourth grade, I think. And so my mom kind of took that over. And so we had things, I think, raspberries, we had cucumbers, tomatoes. I want to say we, I might be making this up, maybe zucchini. I don't know. We had a, a number of things, but I do remember the raspberry bushes and definitely tomatoes, cucumbers, things like that. I'm sure there were other things as well. Stra strawberries, maybe? I don't remember. Mom, help. They grow in your zone. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear from Sarah's mom. Find out what she was growing. Um, I feel like if you look either one generation back or 10 generations back, somebody in somebody's in your family listeners does something to do with gardening. And I mean, it's essential to how we live is we we had to grow our own food. Agriculture is part of what makes us humans basically in, in our history. Um, although there's lots of people who also have connections for hunter gathering and foraging, things like that. Um, so getting connected to our food locally is how for most of human history we have gotten our food. In modern days, we're doing a little less of that. Maybe we're a little less connected to those food systems, but for my family, my grandfather on my dad's side grew up in a big farming family. On my mom's side, they invented a type of melon in New York <laughs> that is now extinct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Irondequoit melon. <laughs> and then my grandfather started a uh, a garden center. And so it's very much like something that is a family tradition for us. And I remember being out now that I'm wearing maternity clothes, one of my favorite maternity clothes a clothing item is my overalls. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about my <laughs> pants falling down at work. But I remind myself of my grandfather a little bit because, you know, he had a little beer belly <laughs> and wore overalls. And I just like imagine him a lot out in his garden chasing away uh, groundhogs. So oh um, uh, I've, I've been involved in the garden since I can remember. And now I work in a garden center professionally. So I'm excited to share this topic with you. And I know that's something you've been asking us to do. So yes. yeah, this week we're going to get started with food gardening. Stay tuned. All right, guys, we are back with the main 
body of our episode, we are going to talk about food gardening. Wanted to break it up a little bit across this episode, kind of talk about the benefits of food gardening, some tips on getting started, and then ways that we can go from kind of traditional means of food gardening to thinking about how to make some of those a little bit greener. So if you are a seasoned food gardener, I'm hoping there's something in here for you. If you're brand new to it, I'm hoping there's something in here for you. Let me know what I've missed um, after you're done listening and, and add in your own food gardening stories too. In Pennsylvania, we are just getting into the season where we can probably start putting things outside. So I'm very excited. I'm eyeing up some nice leafy greens here. <laughs> um, so benefits of food gardening, lots of them on a lot of different levels. Obviously, we are a sustainability podcast. So uh, environmentally, there is no more local than your backyard, which means lower carbon emissions. Um, and you can potentially eliminate lawns, which Sarah and I have talked about doing a killing your lawn yeah. episode. <laughs> this is a great way to start getting rid of your lawn. Yeah, we, you know, we did some episodes on food waste too, Sarah, and we've done some on agriculture. Like what are some big issues with industrial agriculture? Well, they have to make a lot more than is actually going to get consumed is part of it. We talk about things like herbicides and pesticides and that sort of thing can be involved in it as well. And then also for the consumer end of things, you would think you, you have to think about the fact that there's a middleman in all of that. So the produce that you're going to the store and buying has already been sitting around for a while. So that leads, that's a problem for me that leads to more food waste on my end as the buyer, because I can't finish everything in time as a single person by myself. So there are potential environmental issues sort of all along the way that can be addressed by growing some things yourself. Yeah. Nothing fresher than off the vine. And then, you know, some of the things that people might be concerned about in the grocery store, like adding preservatives to food items to make them last longer on the shelf. Some people are worried about what the effects of those are. So doing it in your backyard, you don't have to worry as much about that. Half of the world's habitable land is used for food production. And it contributes to about 25% of our carbon emissions. To make this greener, obviously, I'm not advocating if you have a forest in your backyard to chop down your forest <laughs> and replace it with food gardening. But most of us don't. Most of us have porches or lawns or things like that that aren't necessarily being productive in this sort of way. So we're we're talking a little bit about taking what we would consider unproductive land in some ways and turning it into more productive land for us because we all have to eat. There's just no way around it. Also, people who grow their own food do eat more fruits and vegetables, which means they bypass some more processed items that might contain things like palm oil, which have other environmental impacts that are really problematic. So getting fresh local produce that you grow yourself is has a lot of environmental impacts. I will say I tried to find some numbers on this. And a lot of those articles are behind paywalls. So if you have any numbers that you want to cite, let us know. Yeah. But I will say just I don't anecdotally doesn't really seem like the right word because these are all right true things. Like we know these impacts of big agriculture. But I I just feel like this is the thing. Everything has a cost, of course, but this right. is the thing where it's hard to find a downside to the issue is that we don't all have the means, the knowledge and the resources right. available. So everybody can't do it. But if you can do it, it's hard to find a negative to growing your own food in your backyard. 
exactly. Yeah. If this is something that you're, you have the time and resources and energy for, it's a pretty good hobby to have. <laughs> um, another benefit that can be true for a lot of gardeners is cost. I think this year, a lot of us experienced that inflation in a very real way. And so we were more aware of the cost of groceries and how little control we all mm-hmm. have over what we're paying for our food, which again, we have to eat. Like we can't just choose not to eat food. Um, so food gardening can help lower your costs and insulate you from certain fluctuations in the market. The National Gardening Association reports that most gardeners see a return on their investment with the average gardener that puts $70 into their garden <laughs> with a 600 square foot garden, which they say is about average. That seems pretty big to me. Wow, actually. yeah. <laughs> um, but they see, see a $600 return. Wow. Value. Yes. <laughs> um, and I've seen this actually before from the USDA that like seed gardening produces way more food compared to how much money you're putting into it. I always like have trouble from a business perspective. I don't like to sell this that way to people because they're if especially if you're inexperienced you might right. not get a return that was on my investment. immediate thought was <laughs> yeah. like I I don't know I I do not have the green thumb so yes so that's where part of our advice would be starting small because you don't want to <laughs> throw so much money into something you're don't you haven't gotten the skill it's a skill it's not like just something that's automatically going to happen um but it can be extremely profitable especially for the most popular crops that we grow in in our our gardens that we often consume, at least here in the States, tomatoes, peppers, squashes, lettuces, very productive things that we can have in most of the United States. I also just feel like this is a good way to get your outdoor time in. Yeah. And I will say I struggle a little bit. My mom and I talk about this sometimes, like gardening is something that I I sort of want to want to do but I don't always feel like I really want to do it, you know? So I think, but I think part of that is just the uncertainty and feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. So hopefully this will help push me one step closer in that direction. But what I will say is like when I went outside over the weekend and worked a little bit in my yard, even though I didn't really want to get out there, I felt better as I was doing it. Like I felt more relaxed I felt happier just from both just being outside and sort of feeling like I'd accomplished something in a small way so I feel like this is a good sort of connect to nature moment it totally is that is actually super backed up by science as well and from a health perspective it is a way to stay more active to build up your Mm. immune system you tend to eat more fiber if you're eating food out of your own yard you lower stress. Um, gardening has been used in hospitals. Apparently, Florence Nightingale actually really advocated for having gardening around hospitals, prisons, mental health facilities, long-term facilities with people with disabilities around the world, because they have seen that it just has good effects. People actually use the healthcare system less because they have less issues when they are involved in gardening. People who garden have lower rates of dementia. And there was an Australian study that showed that that was a bigger factor than like walking, education, and keeping your consumption of alcohol down to moderate levels on rates of dementia. This is a tangent, but I wonder how much of that has to do with both the getting outside and perhaps a, a benefit to the diet from doing it. Yeah. 
curious but this this was a really interesting study we'll link it in the show notes it's kind of a a general basis for I think they called it like green care basically looking at ways outside of the traditional medical system that we can help have people have better outcomes and not have to rely on like pharmaceutical drugs and intervention Mm -hmm. treatments and just make it part of their lifestyle um so when you're outside, you're exposed to sunlight, you have a uh, lower blood pressure and higher rates of vitamin D. So all good things health-wise, emotionally, again, lowers stress, brings us closer to nature. Um, people who garden tend to be more resilient people. They tend to recover faster from diseases. And then on a community level, there are so many opportunities for connection with your local community, whether it's with your family or community garden or giving produce away to, you know, people in need. There are so many opportunities to connect with human beings. And that's a thing too. If you are somebody who doesn't feel like you can, or just really doesn't want to take this step right now in your own backyard, there are lots of ways that you can be involved in the community still. Like I've done I can't think of the term right now, but sort of that community produce sharing where Mm -hmm. people have, it's not really a co-op, I don't think, but anyway, you can go and subscribe for, you get like a weekly, you know, produce delivery. Of course, there's farmer's markets and things like that. So even if you're not ready to quite grow your own, those are some things that you can look for. You know, you can see if there's community garden in your area or some kind of program where you can get produce locally from folks who are growing it to help still get some of those benefits and cutting out the middleman in terms of buying produce from the the bigger stores. This is just such a good way to break out of this sort of system that that we've built up, which is helpful to yeah. make society work, but maybe degrades us in, in some other ways. And, and community connection is just a huge part of gardening. And it's something that I I want to explore more. It's something I'm, I mean, we have a local gardening club chapter that I'm going to be speaking at in May. And so there's lots of just opportunities to find people, <laughs> whether it's a friend and you're like trading, you know, food back and forth that you've grown in your own gardens, or it's a neighbor, or it's, it's one of those CSAs like you're talking about. There's a lot of different options out there. So, Okay. Gardening's good. Hard to argue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but how do we do it? <laughs> how do we do it? That's 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 an excellent question there. First of all, I guess I want to say that the way I approach gardening, and this comes from again where I I hate making like your cost benefit is gonna be the biggest element because it, it can be, but I don't want people to necessarily go in with it that way because you will get more frustrated or more disappointed in the process, I feel like, than looking at it as a learning process where you build a skill and then you kind of like perfect that skill. Like I think about this almost like sewing or crocheting mm-hmm. where you like you learn the basics and then you get to do things that are like, oh, I can try something really different. Yeah. I can be really creative. I can be productive. I can do things that are useful. It just has that sort of satisfaction to it. Um, so if you are looking to get started gardening, my first tip is to first evaluate your space, um, which we talked about when we talked about greener gardening with native plants and things like that. Take a look at your space. Most food crops require what we consider full sun conditions. Full sun's typically defined by at least six hours of sunlight a day, like direct sunlight. We're not talking about shade just because you can see in there. 
it doesn't mean that that's sunlight. So it has to be hit by the sun. Plants need the sun to photosynthesize. So you're looking for a space has at least six hours of sunlight a day. It doesn't have to be in the ground because you can container garden. So for example, when I rented in Indiana, I had a whole bunch of containers out on like our lining our front porch sidewalk because that's the only place that we had full sun. Um, and in the backyard, we had black walnut trees which um, produce a chemical in the soil that prevents other plants from growing. Mm-hmm. So it's called juglone. And so I couldn't plant in the backyard because of shade and because of juglone. So I did it in my front yard. And I'll tell you that definitely was something that caught attention of my neighbors because I was outside all the time. The kids would ask me, you know, what what I was growing and it was a good opportunity to be out in the sunshine. So the long and the short of it is, Casey, what I would love is for you to just be like, okay, Sarah, here's what you need to plant and how you need to plant and when you need to plant it. But it's not really feasible, right? It's going to depend right. on where you're at geographically. It's going to depend on the space you have and the, the sunlight you have and, and all of that. So there is just going to be some active learning on your part whoever if you're interested in in getting started like I'm gonna have to read things and retain and plan (laughs) and I can't just rely on somebody to tell me exactly what to do and um so there is is some learning involved that said Casey are there any common things or typical things that you would suggest if somebody has to container garden like if you only have a patio or a balcony would there be things that generally do better in plants that you or in pots that you would recommend at all? Yeah, I would say two things. One, I can't give you that advice, but your local garden center mm. could probably give you much more specific advice because like you said, like my advice for Pennsylvania is going to be totally different than your advice for Florida. Right. Um, herbs would okay. be a really good place to start if you're just going to do container gardening and you don't want to get really big containers Herbs are one of those things, especially if you like fresh herbs. Like if you've ever gone to the grocery store and tried to buy fresh herbs, they are pretty expensive. And a lot of times, like if I need dill, I only need a little bit of dill and they, I still have to buy a giant thing of dill for like $4. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mad about it because I don't use dill that often. But if I grow a dill plant, I can harvest however much I want off of mm-hmm. there. Um, but they typically tend to be smaller. And you can plant multiple of them in the same container. They're not going to dry out as quickly as like a tomato or a pepper plant. So they can be really good starters. And because they're so like fragrant and you only need little bits at a time, it can just kind of add that extra punch to your cooking and you mm-hmm. feel super fancy. Yeah. Um, but you shouldn't have to put as much effort into it. Um, if you take a look at certain types of herbs like basil, for example, If you're in a really hot environment like Florida, you might see it do a little bit better in some more shady conditions than in Pennsylvania because it's more sensitive to heat. So one of the things you have to worry about with some of the cooler weather crops is they might bolt, which means that they're going to send up a flower and turn to seed. I learned that the other day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is the plant going through its life cycle, but it tends to turn the leaves more bitter. So it's not something that you really want to happen to your plant. So something to keep an eye on conditions. But yeah, I would say herbs can be a really good starting place for someone who wants to start really small. And you could do those a lot of times on your windowsill if you needed to. So find a patch. I don't recommend if you're a first time gardener digging up like a 20 foot (laughs) by 10 foot patch of your yard you will get very frustrated by the amount of weeds that you're going to have to pull over that that time period. Also, if you're someone who's going in for partially a cost 
part, if you're going to put up something like raised beds or something Mm -hmm. like that, that's going to have an initial cost that is going to be pretty hefty. Um, So you're not necessarily going to see that return on your investment originally. I would definitely start with something a little bit better. You do need to also take a look to see if you have a really wet garden and your soil doesn't drain. Um, Maybe you have a lot of clay in your soil. There are lots of really easy soil test kits. You can test the acidity. You can find out if there's heavy metals in there. So if those are things that are important or worries for you, that's something to take a look at maybe this time of year as well, even if it's not quite time for planting. Is that a garden center purchase or like can you get those online to test yourself either way yeah either way i we have a ph test kit that's like two dollars like it's really inexpensive but you could get any of this stuff online as well i generally gonna recommend shopping small for a lot of this Mm -hmm. stuff because it stays in your local economy that's a big part of it a lot of these garden centers are independent garden centers so that's an important element to try and preserve those people have a lot of local knowledge and the plants that you get there can be higher quality because you they they have staff that really know what they're doing so they're really watering them as frequently as they need to um, versus some of the bigger box stores or ordering them online but if you are someone who cannot make it out there or don't have a local one online is an absolutely valid option to get your your stuff there so the next thing is to look at what you eat So Sarah, what are some common veggies that you might eat? I'm fairly boring, but I do tomatoes, cucumber are big ones for me. Lettuce and spinach less often, but like bell peppers and zucchini are maybe my top, whatever that was, five or six. (laughs) Yeah, no, those are all, and luckily those are all things that you should be able to get pretty locally. I don't know about you know, in Florida, if there's certain things like lettuce might be a winter crop for you guys, Mm -hmm. because it does get more sensitive to some of that heat. So that's something that I think is important to go with when you're planning your garden is like, what, what do I eat? And you can think about it like in the summer, do we like to, to do barbecues? And we normally have burgers with, you know, a slice of tomato and some lettuce, you know, you're going to consume things that way. For me, Andrew makes so much salsa, (laughs) which is tomatoes, onions, cilantro, jalapeno, habanero. Like those are the things that he likes to put in that. And I can grow all of that. I'm just missing lime juice and a little bit of salt. So my goal is to make sure in the summer that we don't have to buy salsa ingredients. And eventually I would like to never buy tortoise food ever, ever, ever again. (laughs) So that means planting a lot of leafy greens, even though I don't like a lot of leafy greens. (laughs) Easy. Doesn't eat salad. I don't. I, I, there's one type of salad I eat now. (laughs) What is that? My, so my aunt Sandy makes this really delicious salad that has like goat cheese, strawberries, and then the dressing is just olive oil, lemon juice, Mm -hmm. and sugar. It's magnificent it's so sweet it's very good I like it maybe that'll be like my tiptoe into the salad eating world Um, but I can also grow lots of that stuff (laughs) so here's a a question that may or may not have a good answer as you're planning these things out and you kind of looking at your space and what you want to grow how do you determine how much to plant and I know you kind of just answered that you're looking at what you use but like I don't know how many if I were going to plant tomatoes do I just need one tomato plant for myself like I don't know how much yield sure things are going to give me do you know what I mean so do I plant one do I plant three I don't know how to figure those things out 
Okay, so a couple things about tomatoes that hopefully won't go too far down. That the was rabbit just hole an for. example but, plant too. I don't. But I think that's where people, a lot of people, like to start because they know you can grow tomatoes, and also the tomatoes you grow in your garden will be better than the ones you eat in the grocery <laughs> store, like hands down, always, because the ones in the grocery store are bred for uniformity and lasting a long time. They're not bred specifically for flavor and there are like 15,000 different types of tomatoes that you mm -hmm. can get four big categories of tomatoes cherry tomatoes I eat them like ones. candy yep yes Love yep some cherry tomatoes. super sweet gardening has gotten me into cherry tomatoes I don't really want them from the grocery store I want them from my yard there's paste or Roma tomatoes those are what you make your salsas and your mm -hmm. sauces out of if you like to can that's a good one slicing tomatoes great for sandwiches and burgers and then any of those three can also be found in an heirloom variety and heirloom tomatoes or any other type of plant is basically something that's been around for generations that is genetically very stable. And so you can then harvest the seeds from that plant. And when you plant next year, the same plant's going to come up. Um, that's not true of all the hybrid varieties that now exist, but they can come in like different colors and different shapes and things like that. The National Garden Association, when I was reading their page, they said the average tomato plant is going to produce between 10 to 30 pounds of tomatoes. Wow. So for most people, <laughs> like two plants would be plenty. Um, what I always try and do is I like to have like two cherry tomatoes because basically once they start producing on a daily basis, I can go out there and... Mm -hmm and have some instant gratification. Yeah. I like to plant at least one, mostly, most of the time, two of the paste tomatoes because Andrew makes all that salsa. I'll make bruschetta. I will use it for our chili, things like that. And then I like to do like some sort of heirloom slicing tomato just to see what kind of weird variety is out there that I can test out. Partially because my job is people asking me, is this tomato variety good? <laughs> and, and I want to know. So for most people, like select one that you like, why do you use tomatoes? Select one that's going to fit that for the, the slicers and the Romas from there. You can kind of look at the different varieties available to you and they will tell you like produces a lot or, or is like great for containers, mm -hmm. for example. Uh -huh. So cherry tomatoes are better for containers than a big slicing tomato. You typically want a really big container because they're really sensitive to drying out in between waterings. And then the other thing is that there's different types where they'll either produce all of their fruit around the same time or they will do it more slowly throughout the season. So I like ones that are a little bit more slowly across yeah. the season. Those are called indeterminate types. But if you're doing in containers, they have bigger root systems, so it can be more difficult to um, maintain that plant at its highest health. And that's a really long way of answering that question of, <laughs> of yes, you don't want to plant too much. So one of the number one things that I would say people plant way too much of is zucchinis. Okay. Um, if, if you can get a zucchini plant to produce, because I have just for some reason not had a lot of luck with mine, but if you do, you will get zucchinis the size of your forearm forever. <laughs> and you'll be giving away zucchinis to all of your neighbors. So if you end up planting a whole row of zucchinis, just be prepared that that's <laughs> something that's a, might happen to you. You don't need to take up all that space with zucchinis necessarily. You can try and diversify a little bit. I do tend to start with like what I eat, but you can kind of go off in other directions too. One year we planted tomatillos just because they were the only plant that was available during COVID at the one garden center we went to. So I did that and made some salsa verde. I tried different types of peppers that you don't have at the, the grocery store. Mm -hmm. 
once you feel confident enough to be able to like experiment with your space a little bit more, you'll start to get into that little pathway of like, what do I like? And what are some kind of treats I can take for the summer? It feels like cooking almost where people say that, like once you get comfortable with understanding the basics of cooking, you start to experience yeah. experiment with different things. So I guess the same is true on the other end with your, with your gardenings. Right. And with us, at least in our climate, certain crops uh, even if I have a small space, uh, my lettuces, my kales are going to do best in the spring. And then I can replace them when we hit summer with something like a tomato or a pepper that I know is going to be more productive. Mm-hmm. It can be sad for a lot of people to rip out a live plant. A lot of people don't like doing compost that. it, compost Add it. it exactly. Compost. It doesn't have to to end its life cycle there. Most of my experience is in growing veggies. You can grow, you said strawberries, raspberries are really good options. I would say fruit trees are something to avoid if you're a first-time gardener. They tend to produce all of their fruit around the same time. So all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I have 10 million pears and I don't know what to do with them all. Um, Or you might lose them out to like birds and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so you're not necessarily, I think the instant gratification, the connecting your brain to what you're getting out of the plant it's much easier with some of the smaller crops like veggies and then berries things like that okay also define your goals so you know if if your goal is i'm gonna replace a lot of my grocery store diet with stuff at the garden you're gonna tailor it around like all right i maybe i don't eat that many tomatoes right now but i'm gonna eat a lot of tomatoes this summer and i am gonna plant a bunch because i know they'll produce Um, But some people do it because they want to plant only organic items. So you can look for organic options and organic growing methods. Some people just want to get the most bang for their buck or they want to diversify their diet a little bit with something they don't really like at the grocery store, but here's good gardening. So you have a lot of options out there and defining your goals is going to help you better Mm -hmm. narrow down how you want to use your space. Next is going to be planning that garden out and figuring out also what materials you need. So once you kind of figure out what space you want to allocate to each of those plants, you're going to find out if you need containers. If you're growing tomatoes or peppers, I'd recommend a pot that's at least like 16 inches, 14 to 16 inches in diameter. That's a pretty big pot. And that's not necessarily going to be like super, super cheap. I have tried other like alternative options. If you're someone who's worried about chemical leach, like you might want something that's not necessarily like a random plastic pot because people are worried about them degrading in the sun into the soil. Um, but I've tried random giant plastic pots and drilled holes in the bottom mm-hmm. <laughs> of these big totes. Um, you just want to make sure that they have the ability to drain out. Um, and a lot of like, I basically got big totes from Home Depot for $5 or something like that. And I had to put them up on bricks because they weren't draining properly once, even after I drilled holes in them. So it's something to look out for. You want to maintain a constant moisture level with a lot of these things. So if you go too small, those roots are just going to slurp up everything in the summer and dry out in between your waterings. And they will be need, need to be watered more than things that are in the ground. But I also have a friend who was using yogurt containers and milk jugs and things like that for her herbs or her veggie starts when they're yeah. at least smaller. So you can go very recycled with this. And then how much space are each of these things going to to need? And some of these plants are actually a little bit more aggressive spreaders. So like if you plant potatoes, for example, you might find them popping up next year in weird places, (laughs) (laughs) which, hey, you might not be super mad about, but but just be aware that that's a possibility. Um, And mint, anything in the mint family is a very aggressive spreader. So we recommend always planting that in pots because otherwise you're going to have mint everywhere forever and ever. 
and then find your local garden center, figure out what they provide, figure out what things you might need to order specially from the internet, from seeds versus uh, starts that they might have. If you're a new gardener, I recommend getting veggie starts. I don't recommend starting from seed. I've heard that. Yes. They're much more sensitive to like moisture conditions and temperature and other than things like spinach, which you can start from from seed really easily by putting them actually, basically anything what we consider direct sow, they're going to put right into the ground or right into the container. That's a lot easier than like trying to maintain light and temperature levels inside and then transplanting them outside. Eventually, that's your big bang for your buck is a packet of seeds. It's like $3 mm-hmm. and you're going to get a bunch of plants out of it. But the amount of time that you're investing into that and the resources, that might be a little overwhelming. And then ask for advice at that local garden center or on a social media app where you might find a gardening group. YouTube is full of advice, like really good gardening advice out there. There's a lot of channels that are just dedicated to food gardening and homesteading. And in your particular area, if Sarah, if you type in like food gardening in Florida, you will get people popping up and it'll be really good. I like going on even Instagram and following people in my area that are gardening and just seeing what their gardens are doing and getting inspiration. I think for me, it's much like composting was where I know that all of these things exist. And yet for some reason, I still just for a long time felt too scared. It it just felt like too much. And I'm really somebody that I just want somebody to like sit down and teach me face to face. But I got over that with composting. And yeah. so yeah, it's, I, you can do it. You just have to make yourself Next time take I step. visit. We'll we'll go to the garden center. We'll get you all set up with what you need. The nice thing about something like containers where this is, is nice for beginner gardeners is that there is a lot less weeding and you don't Mm -hmm. have to worry as much about your soil quality because you're introducing the potting mix in there that is generally specially formulated for good drainage. It's just about making sure that you water correctly and in the heat of the summer, sometimes that means twice a day and you just stick your finger in there. And if it's dry, you water it. It's not, it's not rocket science, but it is a learning process yeah. skill to learn. Um, I did say that we're going to talk a little bit about greener gardening practices. So if you are currently a gardener or you're getting into gardening, but you really want to do it in the least carbon footprint waste way, these are some things that you want to keep in mind. And I'll try not to spend too much time on it because I know that we're We'll get into the weeds of some of it. A lot of your your veggie starts are coming in plastic pots. Mm-hmm. This is something that the garden center industry knows is a huge issue, does not have a really good solution right, right now. They're starting to experiment a little bit more with biodegradable pots. It's just on a commercial scale, having the longevity in those biodegradable pots. It's it's just not quite there yet. Yeah. But a lot of those pots are are black and a lot of recycling places have trouble reading black pots. Yeah. So it's just not getting recycled. On the other hand, a lot of our grocery store produce comes in bags. involves a lot of plastic. Even if like end consumer doesn't have the bag, when it originally came in, it might've been in bags Mm -hmm. or plastic or things like that you aren't actually seeing. Growing from seed, again, theoretically most cost efficient way. And it's also possibly the way to avoid the most plastic because they come in a little paper bag and you can put them in biodegradable pots yourself. But to get your most bang for your buck, you have to have a certain amount of space and you have to have a certain amount of investment in your time and I would say your skill base as well. So definitely I like to go for things like spinach and radishes that you can put directly into either the ground or a pot that you can also do successive sowing, which means that 
Once that spinach starts bolting, like we talked about earlier, dig that up, plant a new batch. And then it just keeps, it It produces generally within a month. So it's a pretty quick turnaround. It's not like tomatoes that might take two and a half months to get there. And by the time you're done, the growing season is getting towards the end. So you have some options for things from seed that are also still going to be cost-effective for okay. you. They have about a 50% germination rate after the first year. So you can save them year to year. You don't have to throw them out. You just might have slightly less profitable results over time. All right. Peak consumption. This is a little bit of a newer issue to at least be talked about. It's not a new issue as far as gardening goes, but for in the conversation, Sarah, are you familiar with peat? Yeah, vaguely. I know we've talked about it on one of our other episodes as well, but, and I have a hard time describing peat because in my mind, it's just dirt, but it is, it's, it's a layer of dirt, right? That has a lot of organic material in it that hasn't like fully broken down and I think of it as coming from wet areas right and so and I know that again not being a gardener I don't know all of the details but it's used a lot in like potting soil and things like that right is it just designed to be like giving nutrients is that the idea Oh, good, good points. You have brought up a couple things in here. Um, Pete's not technically dirt. Pete is technically part of the sphagnum family. Oh, like okay. Mosses. Yeah. So over time, organic material does break down into these peat bogs, these wetland areas. Um, and so, yeah, you, I guess there's like a couple different layers in these peat bogs. I've linked a couple articles about peat down there. Um, a lot of times when they harvest the top layer, they'll use that for decoration and that has longer strands of sphagnum in it. The lower level is harvested and dried out and it is, you know, soils part organic matter, part not organic mm-hmm. matter. Peat is a lot more of that organic. Right. Yeah. Fluffy part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's used to loosen soil and to retain moisture because okay. that's what bogs do. It actually has basically no nutrients in it. It doesn't really break down, which in some ways is what you're looking for in this because it's it, it lasts over time a little bit more than compost does, for example. So as as in terms of gardening goes, for example, when you start seeds, you want to con- have a consistent moisture ratio and a very light airiness to it. Lots of oxygen transfer. And peat is really, really, really good at that. It's not providing necessarily the nutrients to it because it's not breaking down. It basically lives in an anaerobic environment in the wild or mm-hmm. at least exists in yeah. one, not lives. And so it it's going to give you the best flow. And so a lot of times when you look at potting soils, quote unquote, and we call it potting soil all the time, mm-hmm. they don't even say soil on them. They'll say potting mix. Because they don't really have dirt in a lot of those. They'll have um, peat mix. They'll have things like uh, perlite, which is a byproduct of volcanic deposits. Mm -hmm. They then put in furnaces. It's that like, if you look in potting mix and there's this little white, almost Mm -hmm. rock, and then you can pinch it between your fingers. I love perlite. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Got its own carbon footprint, but it's very cool. The problem with peat, so it's really good for starting seeds it's really good for aerating lightening up soils people will just like put straight peat moss into their soil in pennsylvania because we're super clay so it combats how dense the clay is okay and and provides better drainage and things like that while still not basically being gravel where the water's running right through it it's holding on to enough moisture Mm -hmm. while letting excess through the problem is it is harvested from bogs 
and bogs typically only produce about a 16th of an inch of peat a year. And about 5% of the Earth's land surface is peat bogs. They store more carbon than all the world's forests combined, uh, according to Oregon State University's Linda Brewer, who's a soil scientist there. Huge climate change issue. Right. And not just that, but also like habitat mm-hmm. issue. Right. So and it's one of those that we think of, we talk about that with like old growth forests, how long it takes for those trees to come back. Like you just said, this is this is not sustainable to keep removing peat because it takes so long to reform. Right. And most of the peat here used commercially is harvested from Canada and Russia what's the alternative that's really the question now so Mm -hmm. basically we've discovered peat's not great there's a huge shortage of peat last year in the garden center industry like we could not get a hold of it and we were actively also telling customers about the environmental issues because not only do we want to be greener we also know that long term peat will not be available for gardeners so if you're someone who is a traditional gardener dead set on peat, you're going to have to start experiment with other options because, for example, in the UK, they are banning peat next year for regular gardeners. Wow. They'll use it on commercial scale still because food and industry, but um, but for regular gardeners, they're going to be phasing it out. Um, what are the alternatives? I never know how to pronounce this word. Coconut core? Choir? Core? No idea. I-R. Yeah. The husk. You know, the husk of the yeah. coconut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You grind it up. Um, that is a popular alternative. It's less acidic than peat, so some people actually like it better. It's a byproduct of the coconut industry, so it's less, you know, you're not going into wild lands digging up a carbon sink. It still has a carbon footprint from transportation. It does use a lot of water to clean it up, but it is not wild habitat <laughs> and carbon sink. There's also a company called Pit Moss in Pennsylvania, and they're using shredded recycled newspaper as a peat substitute. So we actually use a reduced peat mix for our growing at our store using the Pit Moss, where it's like 70% less mm-hmm. peat in there. And you can kind of see a little bit of the, the ground up newspaper, but it's a really good soil retention. And they actually, mm-hmm. I mean, they claim to have better success than peat products themselves. Um they have a stake in saying that, right? <laughs> but we've had really good success with them. Other companies that we've worked with when they couldn't find peat were using aged bark fines. Um, so that's almost like mulch, but like after mulch has been composting for a while. So it's breaking down a lot more. Again, adding that that airiness and moisture retention to the, so- the mixes as a peat substitute. So there are options out there. Um, there's a New York Times article I've linked behind, up below, and she was talking about it like cooking again, where like, let's say you switched from flour to like gluten-free flour and you're trying to make the same recipe. It's not going to act the exact same way. And so you're going to have to experiment about how to like adjust your recipe a little bit to figure out how to be- make it work best for you. And that doesn't mean it will will work worse over time. It's just mm-hmm. that you're going to have to change up your methods a little bit. Other consumption, just like any hobby, you can get way down a rabbit hole with trying to overbuy all the coolest little tools and new things going on. I'm certainly guilty of that in a lot of ways. I have a lot of fabric behind me from when I went through my sewing craze after COVID, which I'm hopefully going to consume. I'm making baby bibs right now. Um, But uh, you can do the same thing with gardening. There's lots of fancy trellises, raised beds, the nicest tools. 
you may be on a budget and trying to reduce costs, or you might just try and be a little greener. You can repurpose scraps of wood, bamboo, fishing line to make trellises and climbing structures for your plant. You can join buy nothing groups on social media and see who's giving away what gardening groups as well. Um, and then, you know, if you're one of those people who does never knows what to ask for, for Christmas or for your birthday, ask for gardening stuff that you need because you know, you'll use it the next year. Another major issue that you mentioned earlier, Sarah, were fertilizers. Mm-hmm. So in industrial agriculture, there's an over-application and reliance on fertilizers. Obviously, there's lots of farmers doing great strides to incorporate more natural ways of introducing ingredients, but it is a really big issue. What happens when you have extra fertilizer, Sarah? What happens to that fertilizer? It runs off and it goes places it shouldn't go down our drains and into our waterways. Yeah, our waterways into the ocean. Do you know what the major nutrients that plants need are? In fertilizers, I know nitrogen and phosphorus, right, are Mm -hmm. usually the big ones. Yep, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. You got two of the the three major ones. Plants actually do need like something like 17 to 20 macronutrients in there. Those aren't the only ones they need, but that's what they need in the most amounts. And so nitrogen turns things green. Um, Phosphorus helps strengthen roots. And then potassium helps with overall plant resiliency. You're going to see numbers like that on fertilizer bags. If we have excess nutrients in our oceans, it causes algae, which is the plants in the ocean, to overproduce, which can suck up a lot of the oxygen and create dead zones in the ocean, which impact lots of wildlife. So it does have ramifications. Even here in Pennsylvania, we end up impacting the Chesapeake Bay when we overapply fertilizers. So there's two big options that I'd recommend. The first one is the one Sarah's doing. Sarah, what are you doing? Composting. Composting. It's a really good way to reduce your garden waste in general, your food waste, and then you can use it. I'm kind of excited to start gardening so that it will help feed my compost, which is, I feel like, the opposite of the way that you're supposed to feel about it. But oh no, it's a compost to help your garden. But um, yeah, anyway. Hey, no one likes hauling those big paper bags of yard waste out of their yard anyway. So start a compost. It's a really great way to return those nutrients to the land, reduce methane emissions from the landfill, be a little greener. Um, Your other option would be something like a slow-release organic fertilizer. Um, My little disclaimer is I just went through a training with an organic fertilizer company at work. And so a lot of the things I'm going to talk about right here is from that training. I don't have like my scientific papers listed here. So you can always follow up and let me know if you find anything. First thing is read the bag. You will see three numbers listed on there. Those are those three macro ingredients, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and the potassium. You may be tempted by the biggest numbers. Don't be tempted by the biggest numbers. Bigger's not always better. That's right. The plants don't need that much. Um, So a popular fertilizer back in the day was 10-10-10. And so it was 10% of each of those categories. Mm-hmm. So that equals 30% of the bag, obviously. 70% of that was then inert materials that help you spread that fertilizer. What happened is, it, I mean, it, that was a synthetic formula um, and the plants couldn't take up that much. And so that's what causes a lot of that runoff. If you have a slow release organic fertilizer, not only do you have to use less of it, it's going to have lower numbers that the plant can actually uptake. The rest of the material can provide, it, it's not just like inert dust and things off of the factory floor. Um, the company that we were 
getting our training from, they use poultry manure and like feather meal mm-hmm. and bone meal in it, which has some of the other things like calcium, which tomatoes really need, magnesium, which plants need, are also in that formula. And they're so the company I got the training from is called Espoma, and they're the largest poultry waste recycler in the country. So that helps keep things a little greener. Their company is all solar panel uh, energized as well. But the extra ingredients in there include things that the plants actually need. So it's not just like extra fluff in there. You're getting more bang for your buck, even though those numbers are a little lower and maybe like a little less enticing. My number one thing is read the bag. Um, Read the bag for the application instructions so you don't overdo it. I like slow release because um, there's a little more margin for error versus like, a lot of folks like to use miracle grow for example mm-hmm. where like you know that do you ever see those blue like you screw on your hose and it's like a blue oh, yeah. powder yeah lots of people really like miracle grow not a big miracle grow fan in general but that's like something that you can easily over apply that's going to mm-hmm. leach into the soil versus something that's more of a powder that you apply um and a lot of these organic things can also have some of the mic that we talked about from our fungus episode built into them as well. So that helps improve your root structure, not just add ingredients to the soil. Pesticides, pests are a real issue when it comes to gardening. Again, this is one of the reasons I don't want to tell people that they're going to save money when they're gardening, because if you end up with a bunch of pests, then you're not going to save money when you're gardening. Um, You can plant companion flowers like marigolds and nasturtiums, which can help repel pests. So there's certain flowers that certain bugs don't really like. And so plant them around the edge of your garden. That can help. There's natural ways to catch slugs. Like you can put a bowl of beer and dig it into the ground and they want to go for the sugars and they drown. Sorry, slugs, but they won't eat your cabbages. (laughs) So so if you do use pesticides, follow the instructions, choose options that are not systemic, which means going up through the, the plant system and make sure you don't apply them on like a windy day or when the bees are super active. So take a look out for those things. Sarah, another thing is water consumption. Do you have any tips on how people can basically conserve water while gardening? Yeah, there are things like I know I have friends that would keep a little bucket in their shower when they were taking a shower and then use that to go out and water their plants afterwards. We also, uh, I have never had one because I don't really garden, so I wasn't sure to do with it, but you can also have some sort of rain catch system, like a rain barrel something like that. We've done rain barrel decorating contests at work before that was obviously fun and somebody got to take them home Um, but those can be really nice too to just catch rainwater and utilize that for things like watering your plant yeah rain barrels even if you don't have a garden for them it can help reduce some of the runoff from your roof and more basically you catch it the rest of the ground absorbs the water that Mm -hmm. it can and then you can release Release it a little bit later but yes, that's a really good way to water your garden. Um, you can even use leftover pasta water. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's another way. There's lots of options for reducing your water consumption, especially during times of drought. You want to be conscious of that. But generally under like drought restrictions, even when they tell you you can't water your lawn, they're not saying you can't garden for food. And in fact, food stamps like the EBT program can be applied to food food and seeds, food plants. So that's something to take a look at. Um, I know like our system isn't set up for that, but take a look at your local area and see if there are any places, if this is something you're looking to get into and you don't have a big budget, that's uh, an option for you too. 
So that is my general steps for gardening. Maybe this should have been like a three-part, four-part episode. <laughs> we can always do more later. We, can, do we more. can have more sort of focused on different areas if you want to or anything like that. But no, I feel like that is great. And I have some little notes that I wrote down here. So thanks. Thanks for sharing your tips. I'm excited about it. I don't know how soon I'll get started, but I do feel more and more confident that I will be trying to plant something. Good. Just FaceTime me and we'll look through your garden. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I hope that people feel a little bit empowered. This is something that like humans have done forever and take a look at what your options are out there. Even if it's just connecting to your food a little bit closer, you can even just appreciate how hard it is for people who work in the industrial food industry to plant and harvest and maintain those crops that make our society possible. So um, lots of benefits out there, but I hope you guys will start and stick around. We'll uh, go through our challenge of the week. All right, guys, we're back with the challenge of the week. This is a little bit of an obvious one. I just give you some steps for planning your garden a little bit. So plan your garden. Figure out if if you can do a little plot for food gardening, a little container, and share them with us. Let us know what's going on. We want to see what's going on with you guys. This is one where you folks listening, I really would love to hear from you, whether it's if you want to share what your plan is but if you have a garden at home already like what are your favorite things to grow do you have any tips share photos of what you're collecting we can get our own little little gardening community going a little greener gardening as well (laughs) yeah exactly so I hope that some of you out there uh, listening are are able willing and able and you know if I I'm gonna try I'm gonna try to at least take some steps toward planning like making a an actual list of what plants I want and start to look at what needs to be planted when and I have a little raised bed type thing that it would it would need to be filled which I know is is a cost but uh, so I have a potential already set up area that I just need to clear out and so maybe I can get to work doing some of that physical stuff too so I'm excited I'm going to try to take some steps this week and definitely share with us what you're doing please yeah if you are a seasoned gardener and you want to share any sort of green tips that I've missed too we would really love that alternatively let's say you are not in the position to do any sort of food gardening take a look in your community for gardening initiatives so there might be a local community garden like my church has a community garden Mm -hmm. where they will put all the food towards the local food bank. And so they have days where they want volunteers to help clean up the beds. Um, But even if you're not physically capable of doing that, there are other initiatives like Trellis Gardens, which is in my community. They connect local businesses and basically the local businesses will have a spot for their gardens there. And they have teens come in and food garden and take it back to their communities. So it helps with more food security, but also teaching teens about growing their own food, being more resilient kids, team building, all of that good stuff. So that's a an organization that we love supporting um, local to me, but there's probably something like that pretty close to you. So check out to see if you can find one of those. Sarah, if they want to show us what they're doing, where can they do that? 
You can find us on Facebook at A Little Greener Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. You can find us on Twitter at A Greener Podcast. And you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Sarah, I'm so excited for you to get a little closer to gardening. I'm excited too. And Casey, don't forget, you have to share with us as well, where I'm very excited to see as your yard, your new yard progresses as you grow and plant things. Yes, we are about a week away from where I'm like a little more comfortable because we're going to get some freezing temps overnight. Yeah. Andrew has decided I am gardening foreman this year. I'm not allowed to dig. <laughs> like Good that. job, Andrew. Yes. So, um, but we actually have some, some like raised up veggie containers mm-hmm. as well that I can work at at like chest level that I should still be able to do some of that stuff. Get my hands in the dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt. So, yeah. uh, so yes, I will share updates as well as we get a little bit closer and hopefully throughout the summer and just reference you guys to, to what we've got. So awesome. thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.